You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tom Jackman, a criminal justice reporter here at the Post. Today, we're going to look at the growing problem of rising violent crime across America with a focus on possible solutions. My guest is the Deputy Los Angeles Police Chief, Amada Tingaridis. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Chief. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. All right, so we're going to talk a lot about uh, solutions to crime, but I want to ask you first about your path to your position as a deputy chief in that department, doing something that is not traditional, didn't used to be thought of as traditional policing. You're a native of LA, you grew up in Watts, and became a police officer in 1992, around the same time as the Rodney King riots. Uh, But you didn't become a standard lock them up, let someone else sort it out police officer. You started working in community relations in Southeast LA and then helped create the Community Safety Partnership Program. And in 2020, that program became a full-time bureau in the LAPD with you as deputy chief. So why did you become a cop in 1992? And, and how did you wind up in this particular role of you know, community policing? What were you thinking? Well, actually, I, I joined the Los Angeles Police Department in 1995. And the, the 92, yes, sir. The 92 uh, Rodney King incident is what propelled me um, to do this type of work. Not to mention, I came from a family of service. My mother was a nurse and worked in the emergency room at USCMC in the 80s, where shooting victims and homicide victims were were walking into that hospital in the hundreds. And so I come from a background of service. My grandmother was an LA County Sheriff and an educator for over 35 years. And I just grew up in an environment where public safety and giving back to others was part of my DNA. Growing up in South Los Angeles, And at the turn of the crack cocaine epidemic and seeing what it did, how it ripped our community apart, that along with wanting to just give back and make a difference in the city that I grew up in is what really propelled me to become a police officer. When the Community Safety Partnership Bureau uh, started, it was really just in my DNA and not something that I had to think hard about. I knew it was the right thing to do, to work alongside the community, to come up with solutions, to address some of the root causes and despair in our communities and do it collectively with our nonprofit organizations, with law enforcement, with our community, with our intervention and prevention services to make a difference in some of our most violent communities in the city of Los Angeles. Right. Well, so let's drill down a little bit on that word solutions. You're also a member of the Council on Criminal Justice Violent Crime Working Group and today published a report entitled Saving Lives, 10 Essential Actions Cities Can Take to Reduce Violence Now. So tell us about some of those recommendations. Absolutely. I want to say when I was at first approach to to join the working group, um, I was a little nervous. 
I knew that we would have individuals as part of our team from that were professors from academia. And I'm thinking, well, what do they want from a police officer? What am I going to have to, to add to this? We had um, street, work, street workers, intervention, prevention, professors, public health. And we really were a group of individuals with so many different experiences and ways of looking at crime where we actually came together and found out that we have a lot in common. We all agreed that we needed to collectively work together, that we needed to come up with solutions to look at the root cause of the crime in our communities, from financial, from crime prevention through environmental design, to police being strategic in their approach to identifying individuals that are creating havoc and fear in our communities, from having professors from different um, institutions talk about some of the evidence-based um, solutions to this problem and having the opportunity to work with this very diverse group to come up with solutions at a time across this country where violence has increased, fear has increased, and from a law enforcement perspective, the support for the work that we do decreased. And so the work that we did and the solutions that we came up with were holistic. They're grounded in public health. They're grounded in partnership and coming together to come up with solutions. One of our recommendations is to ensure that our city leaders agree with this type of work. Like in Los Angeles, we have the Mayor's Office of Gain Reduction and Youth Development. There is a direct report to the Los Angeles mayor as it relates to our intervention and prevention efforts in our city. The solutions can be implemented throughout this country. They're based in relationships, in coordination. And I think it, there was a very thoughtful process that went into this working group. And I'm looking forward to our city adopting these recommendations as well as sharing it across the country. So you mentioned evidence-based uh, solutions. Well, that's you. I mean, you're the one that's out there gathering the evidence. Your people are on the street. So what have, what have you seen, your time on the street, your time overseeing the community safety partnership, what, what works on the street and, and how does that relate to these recommendations? What, what's in here that, that came from LA? I'll tell you what works, the partnerships the partnerships and the ability to build relationships. In order to do that, we have to be balanced in our approach, willing to listen and sit down and understand some of the issues and concerns. And part of that process is truth and reconciliation. It's having empathy and compassion, like our work group mentioned, to understand where our community's been to understand how law enforcement has engaged with our community, and then to uplift that community voice. Part of the work that we do with the Community Safety Partnership Program alongside a nonprofit organization called Urban Peace Institute is to conduct community sentiment surveys as it relates to the living conditions in communities, as it relates to how the communities feel about police officers, as it relates to what the community can do to enhance their capacity to address the violence and quality of life issues and work alongside police to make a difference. 
I've had the ability to work in the community of Watts for over a decade. There was a time in some of the housing developments we were experiencing seven homicides a year in our housing developments. As we worked with the community, worked with our intervention and prevention agencies, worked with our city council leadership, we started to see a reduction in crime. We had to do that with some strategic suppression, with making arrests, with addressing the individuals and bringing them to justice for the crimes that they were creating, but we were solution-based about it. We were strategic about it, and we worked collectively with the community to make those changes. Recently, a study was done in the community in South Los Angeles, and what the community said was 71% of them said, we want more police in our community. 63% said their biggest fear was violent and gang activity in their community. We have to look at those fears, and even if they don't produce a crime number, but it's how someone feels, it's our role collectively with public health, law enforcement, our schools, our nonprofit organizations to come up with a strategic plan, measurable actions to address that and make a difference in a change in our communities. And and I want to ask you more about that, but I, I also want to address, I guess, what would be a criticism, which is, well, but the homicides went up in Los Angeles the last two years and around the country uh, in each of the last two years. Uh, I saw that you mentioned to the LA Times last week that other crimes had gone down. But what do you say to the old school folks who say, this community relations stuff, that doesn't work. Let's go back to hardcore enforcement. You mentioned strategic suppression, but uh, when crime is going up citywide, uh, what do you say to people who say, maybe we should do more strategic suppression? We have to look at the root causes of why homicides occur, why individuals make a decision to pick up a gun and attempt to take or take someone's life. And a lot of those decisions are based upon mental health, based upon individuals who have post-traumatic stress that hasn't been addressed. Those are things that strategic enforcement alone cannot solve. That's our mental health system. That's looking at our criminal justice system and ensuring individuals coming out of our prison system have resources, have the support so that they can go back into the community and become productive citizens and give back to the community that they one time wreaked havoc in. I've had the opportunity to sit down and work with ex-gang members, work with street outreach workers, work with gang intervention, we all want the same thing. We want peace and safety in our communities. In one of the largest public housing developments west of the Mississippi in 2021, we saw an increase in homicides. We had eight homicides in a community that had almost a decade of peace and a reduction in violent crime. And when these incidents happen, the response from the community was anger and fear but wanting to come up with solutions to figure out why these homicides happen. And what we learn working alongside our mental health, working alongside our clinicians that responded out to these communities to address the trauma that these homicides had with the children and the families in our public housing developments, what we learned is those homicides were based off conflict, someone not getting along with someone else. How do you suppress that as a law enforcement officer, 
That's mental health. That's understanding the capacity of the individuals in our community and getting them the resources to address conflict outside of picking up a gun and being angry about an incident or someone dating someone else or just being upset. So I grabbed a gun and went out and shot someone. That creates so much fear and trauma in a community. I have five public housing developments that I've seen two years in a row with no homicides at all. That sustainable violent crime reduction efforts through strategic enforcement with our gang units, with our community safety partnership officers, working alongside intervention and prevention to make those communities safe. One of the recommendations, I think you sort of touched on it there, but I'd be interested to know more about it says, uh, cities should identify the key people and places driving the violence uh, and you know warn people of their uh, what could happen to them. They could get arrested, they could get killed. How does that work in real life? How do you go on the streets and say, you know, you need to cut this out? How does that work? It's you have to do it alongside the community. And if you're working in communities that don't have trust for law enforcement, it's a tough message to have a cop send to the community. The message we send is when we make that arrest, we're making a statement that this isn't going to be tolerated in our community. Part of doing that though, is having a discussion, explaining to the community why we took the actions that we took. It's very critical to identify key individuals in our communities that are willing to sit down at the table and discuss with a balanced approach with public health, with law enforcement, with our city leaders and make our communities safe. Some of the key leaders that we utilize in our community safety partnership program are our street outreach workers, our intervention workers. We also meet regularly with the prevention services. We try to have this restorative justice root cause approach so that we don't see this continual increase of violence in our communities. And that means coming across a youth who may have committed a small infraction, but finding out why, and then connecting him to the proper resources so that that person doesn't recidivate. And those resources are key in working alongside law enforcement to, to make that change. Uh, I saw in a report done by UCLA uh, at, that looked about at this in 2020 that the neighborhoods are generally receptive, but it takes several years to see results. Has that been your experience? And is that what you would tell people wanting to launch an all out project like this in their city? It, it definitely takes time. When you look at the catalyst for violence, when you look at the catalyst for the civil unrest in communities, a lot of it is based on a lack of resources. A lot of it's based on a breakdown in our justice system, a breakdown in the resources in our communities, a breakdown in our public health systems and our education system. That builds frustration, anxiety, fear, which can result in conflict and anger. We saw that with the 1965 riots. When you throw in a strained relationship between law enforcement 
and the community that adds. And so it does take time. And part of that healing process is listening to one another, understanding the culture and the history of what has occurred in these communities, and sometimes having to apologize for the wrongs of individuals on both sides. The officers have to understand and respect the communities that they're working in, and the communities have to learn to understand the policies and procedures and empathize the officers as well. When you can come to an understanding, a mutual understanding of respect and realizing that police want the same things that the community wants, which is safety and health in our communities, you can begin to make change. And part of the Violent Crime Working Group was an acknowledgement that we have to change on both sides. And, and how we do that. And identifying those key leaders, identifying those key resources in communities, understanding that relationship building and truth and reconciliation takes time. It takes commitment. It takes understanding. And the pendulum will swing as trust is built. And sometimes it does take five to 10 years. And the UCLA study identified that. 10 years in doing this relationship-based policing work, we found that violent crime decreased, but trust between law enforcement and the community increased. When you're able to accomplish that, but to continue to work through it and not get complacent, you can begin to see and make change in the community. There's one player in the system who's not mentioned in the report, and that's the prosecutor, the district attorney. And particularly with the new progressive prosecutors, such as George Gascon in L.A. and Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore, uh, there's a new approach with decriminalizing some offenses and trying to reprioritize prosecutions and investigations. So, and there's been a strong pushback from line officers in some places. Uh, can your program work with progressive prosecutors? Uh, is there a conflict there? How's it? How's that working out? Part of the recommendations and what we discussed with our working group is coordinating with everybody. And that includes our criminal justice system. I mentioned earlier about uh, recidivism and having resources for individuals that are coming out of the prison system. Oftentimes when you come out of prison, you have a difficult time getting a driver's license or an ID are getting a job because there's policies in place where if I'm a parolee, I can't get a job. Right now with the Community Safety Partnership Program, we're working with vocation, we're working with trade schools to accept individuals who come through the prison system to get them jobs, to get them an ID, to get them a trade so that they can make money and put food on the table and be able to survive and live in the community that they once terrorized, giving back to their community. The responsibility is on all of us. It's on every system to ensure that we have resources in place to accept individuals back into our society. That's not to say that certain individuals should sit in prison for 20 years. I don't necessarily disagree with the, the, the reduction of some of the sentencing that 
for small graded crimes that have occurred across the country. When we look at the root cause of why some of these crimes are occurring, is it a criminal issue or is it a public health or social issue? There's not one answer to it all. All of our systems have to have a public health lens to address this violent crime crisis, to address our jail system, to ensure when these individuals are arrested and they do their time, they don't come out and recidivate and terrorize our communities further. Well, do you feel like the liberalization of, of bail, uh, and there's a feeling among police that, that people are getting arrested and coming right back out. Is that making things worse? Is that, uh, is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about now pre-trial, pre-conviction, the people that you know get busted, well, it's just a property crime, they're let right back out. Is that a problem? The concern is we're not balanced. And when you're unbalanced, it can cause disruption and destruction. And it's not this or that. We have to be in the middle. We have to look at all sides and not place emphasis on one side versus the other. And when we implement strategies, but we don't bring all of our partners to the table to discuss those strategies, then be, it becomes unbalanced. There's a confusion on the law enforcement end as it relates to the new policies in place, and there's confusion on the community's end. There's a lot of discussion about violent crime, but the voice of the victims oftentimes gets left out. And our victims need to be part of those solutions and recommendations that come from our government and decisions that are made in order to have a holistic approach to crime and ensuring that we make our victims whole. Right, well, back to crime and guns. And you discussed this, uh, actually you have a piece in Time Magazine today about how our politics is also the main impediment to another uniquely American aspect of the challenge, millions of guns, many of them falling into the wrong hands. The FBI reports that firearms were involved in 77% of murders in 2020, that's up. We know first time gun ownership is up. Uh, you know, have you seen a reason for a surge in gun ownership? And is there any reason to be hopeful when it, doesn't, when it seems like gun laws are going in the opposite direction from more tightly regulated? I, uh, guns are dangerous and they're the catalyst of the fear in our communities. And in Los Angeles, we have seen an increase in our victim shot and an increase in our violent crime. Another concern are the ghost guns. You can't trace them. Um, they're passed on from one individual to the next. And we've seen a huge increase in the possession of ghost guns um, in Los Angeles. And I mentioned balance and policies and regulations on ownership of guns. And that really too is up to our government, like we did with our violent crime working group, to sit down and look at our victims, look at our policies, look at what guns do to communities, and really identify why people are settling disputes with a gun. The person that pulls the trigger is the issue and the concern. And why is that individual, that perpetrator, that person making a decision 
to take somebody's life with a gun. It's not the gun itself that commits the crime. It's the person pulling the trigger and making that decision to destroy a community and someone's life and wreak havoc in a community. Our laws, how we respond to gun crime has to have accountability and individuals that pull that trigger need to be held accountable. But at the same time, like our work group identified, what are the solutions? Getting key people, intervention, street workers, to get out there on the street and find out why these individuals are carrying these guns. Ensuring that individuals that do commit crime are held accountable for their actions. And then looking at our laws and policies as it relates to gun ownership and why we have these ghost guns, what, what are the solutions? And how do we collectively, for decades, this has been a concern and an issue, um, firearms. But how do we collectively come up with solutions and one side isn't have the answer, it's balanced. A question that a number of us, a number of readers have wanted me to ask you is about the death of the teenage girl, uh, Valentina Oriana Peralta, in a Los Angeles department store shot by a, a police officer with a rifle in a crowded place. What do you tell somebody on the street who comes up and asks you about that? And what, what questions do you have about that case? Um, I had several individuals from the community uh, reach out to me um, to express their sorrow um, for what occurred. And it's extremely tragic, tragic incident that took place. And this young lady lost her life. And I have had multiple conversations with people in the community that empathize and feel um, completely um, torn and upset about what occurred. And part of my response well, what do you say? is- What do you say to them? Go ahead. And yes, that's where I was going. Part of my response first is thanking them for reaching out and not alienating law enforcement and being willing to pick up the phone and call and express how they are feeling. Part of understanding pain and the, the temperature of a community is listening and understanding and having empathy, as we mentioned in our work group, having empathy, reaching out to key leaders and having those difficult discussions about what has occurred. One of the things that we found with the Community Safety Partnership Program is when something critical happens in a community, decades ago, we would be at odds with the community and not sit down and even have a conversation about it. This incident occurred and we were able to sit down and have conversations and listen and understand and strategize and talk about how can it be prevented. And so what I say is, one, we are sorry and we feel for the family and the tragedy of that incident. And two, thank you for being willing to come forward and discuss these difficult incidents with law enforcement as we come up with, with solutions. Well, that's a lot. And unfortunately, we're out of time. So we'll have to leave it there. 
But uh, thank you so much for joining us, Deputy Los Angeles Police Chief Amada Tingaridis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Tom Jackman. Uh, as always, thanks for watching. Check out what interviews we have coming up. Uh, head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about all of our upcoming programs. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.